Nehemiah chapter 8 as we continue our journey uh, through this uh, historical book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 8, it's 18 verses, uh, that centers upon the reading of the law that was given uh, once the walls and the temple were reconstructed. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right hand, Padeah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanda, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sheribiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masaniah, Keliah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, Today is a holy, today is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make Great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of all the fathers' households of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God. 
and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the cap- come captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day all the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amen. May God bless this reading of His Word to our hearts and our lives. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that Your blessing would be upon us as we too read and study Your Word. May it be a light unto our path, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we come back to Jerusalem and the walls are up, the temple is built, and Israel is no longer a silly vassal to her neighbor's whim. She's fortified and she stands no longer defenseless or under God's curse for past disobedience and exile. The people of God have returned and they've returned to the promised land and they've rebuilt the city of Zion and now they have a season of peace and so very quickly they begin reaping the spiritual harvest of this peace, the peace dividend, spiritual peace dividend, if you will. They are free to worship God. And God made provision for His worship. He had spoken His word. He had spoken His will from the prophets of old. And that word had been recorded. And in the wonderful providence of God, it had been protected even in a time of attack and exile and chastisement. The scriptures, sacred and precious to the people of God, were again at the center of their lives. But what's so important about the Bible? What's so important that the people of Jerusalem then in the restoration would pay attention and care about it? And why should we? The answer in our text is very simple. Scripture is a means of grace and it is food for our hungry souls. You see, we need the Word of God. The Scripture is God's gift to His church. And God's people should desire it, even as we've seen in the first verse, that all the people gathered as one man. They came together in order to hear the Word of God. And God's people ought to also gather together, even this day, to hear it. We have had the Word read and preached and sung and prayed and seen today. We have had the Word of God as it's been read and preached, applied to heart and life. And so there's been opportunity in public worship to gather together and to hear the Word of the Lord. But it's not just hearing, it's also understanding as we listen to it and as we obey. uh, That is also in mind in this particular passage. We can see that as the people gathered, they were eager to hear. And as they heard, they knew that they had fallen short and needed to put it into practice. You see, getting the Scripture is worth all the trouble. It's worth the time to hear it. It's worth the strain of attention because in this particular gathering, the presence of all the men and the women and those could understand, who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So God's people gathered and And they didn't gather to fall asleep or be distracted or to punch one another or or to engage in some other activity. There were no iPhones with games on them among the people at that time. Rather, they were there to hear 
and to pay attention in heart and life. And they had gone to trouble to set things up. They, they had constructed a platform. It was made of wood. They had built a pulpit from which the Word of God was to be read and spoken to them. And so the Word was read. But more than just the Word being read on that occasion, the Word of God was preached as well. Thirteen elders supported Ezra's effort. And so it wasn't just the one man who had to read because there was so much to cover that they had forgotten, that they had not heard in so many years, uh, that it took 13 others to help him read. We've seen this kind of thing in our own day, in our own nation's life. Do you remember the solemn reading of 3,000 names at Ground Zero in New York on the, on the first anniversary of uh, 9-11? Uh, the mayor stood up and he read, but he was not the only one. There were others to come up and help. There, were, there was too much to read for one man to speak. And so these 13 elders supported the effort of the reading of God's Word. And the reading of God's Word was something that was not done privately on this occasion, but publicly, corporately. It was the beginning of a high and holy day, a festival of the worship of the Lord, as we learn in verses 5 and 6. And 13 ministers moved among the people of God. Yes, there were those who were helping to read the Word, but then there were others who were explaining what was being read. They were... There were potentially some language problems because they had been exiles and and the Hebrew being read might have been somewhat unfamiliar to some of those in the party, words forgotten. Hebrew school was not so easy to conduct off uh, in exile. But mostly the word needed to be expounded and explained and applied to their hearts and lives. Yes, that's what the word said. Yes, the Lord really means this. Yes, Our lives should be different than they are. Do you remember? It was televised and all the world watched the funeral of Princess Diana. I will never forget the day that Prime Minister Tony Blair took to the pulpit. You know, that's always should be a little scary when the politician gets in a pulpit. And he read from 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not charity, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He read it beautifully. Actually, he not only read it beautifully, but he read it in a Scottish accent. It could not have been better. It was King James. It was poetic. The backdrop in Westminster Abbey was utterly appropriate. A historic event. But no one in attendance, it seemed, had the slightest idea about what was being said. Oh, it was all very pretty. And immediately afterwards was followed with Sir Elton John, that bisexual priest of pop culture, who sang a candle in the wind with a few twists dedicating it to the deceased. The entire country and world were caught up in the mass hysteria. Sentimentality ran right down the aisle in Westminster Abbey. Goodbye Norma Jean turned into goodbye English Rose. And it made little difference because, you see, it was all about us. It was all about our feelings. It was all about our emotions and our loss. The deceased might have not even been there at all. Without the preaching, 
without the explanation, without the exposition, without the application of the Word of God. Blair's syllables were the real candle in the wind, spoken one moment and flickering away the next. They walked out with a smile in their face and a song in their heart, as lost or maybe even more lost than they were when they walked in. Preaching is essential to the proper understanding and living of scriptural truth. You see, we have consciences, and those consciences need to be pierced. The the veil of our dullness needs to be pierced. The Word needs to be lodged in our minds and hearts all the more. And the Lord gives us silly preachers in order to help with that important endeavor. Preaching shakes us. It wakes us to see our need and God's gracious provision for our need. Reading alone, while a means of grace, reading alone is not the order that God has commanded in worship. You see, the word smites us. We see in verse 9, the people wept when they heard the word of God. Oh, they wept and had to be told, do not mourn, do not, do not weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The remnant had returned from Babylon, where they've been exiled for their sins. Uh, daily life in that place and surviving as the people of God on any level had been a daily struggle. <clears throat> they were under oppression. They forgot what their own faces looked like spiritually, much less the details of their culture and religion. And now they return to the land by the might of Almighty God, gathering to rebuild Jerusalem and hear the word read publicly in worship. The Torah, the law of God, read line by line, and all of Israel was cut to the quick. They had come so far. They had done so much. God had so richly blessed them. And now they heard how far short they fell of God's command. Their lives were intertwined with foreigners. They had married outside the faith. They had not separated themselves from false worship practice. They did not even deal kindly or fairly with others in the household of God. As the word was read... They wept. They were humbled. The word sometimes debases the proud and the spiritually needy like ourselves. It wounds our wicked hearts. You know, sometimes folks say the most interesting things at the door of the church uh, after a service. I'll never forget the time there was a man who met me. Uh, He had this stern look on his face. He shook my hand, but it felt a little awkward, you know, when he did, and he He said these words, Preacher, didn't like what you had to say this morning. What do you say? I looked him square in the eye and I said, I didn't like it either. It hurt my pride too. The word convicts guilty sinners like us here in this church, your life and mine. It lays us low by poking, poking at our sins prodding and threatening us with chastisement or worse. We stand under God's word sometimes like juveniles caught red-handed with their fingers in the cookie jar. It comes crashing into our illusion and suddenly we see things as they really are. And this startling shake-up can terrify the human soul and drive it to its knees. 
With Isaiah, we find ourselves crying out, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. Lord, have mercy upon a sinner like me. You know, sometimes uh, in some generations, the church has been tempted to uh, only listen to the happy text. Remember uh, some character out on the West Coast uh, called himself a pastor and built a big old cathedral made out of glass. And he published a Bible. The most difficult thing he ever did was not be on television. I, I feel sorry for him on Judgment Day. He, he published a copy of the Bible with ra- all the happy verses in, in rainbow text colors. You know, cheer you up. Only read, the, only read the cheery neon colored verses. Oh, no. We need the whole counsel of God, not, a, not an edited Bible. What he did was only a little bit more clever and better marketing than what Thomas Jefferson did with a pair of scissors, cutting out all the parts he didn't like. We need the whole array of teaching in the Scriptures. We need all the material that's here, lest we neglect His commands and be unfaithful as Israel in her sin. And so we don't have long before the sandwich supper, but you have to ask yourself before you take the first bite, what about me? How does the Word of God hit me? How does it make me feel? Do I, do I come to church to be lifted up and to, to get a smile and a tap and a bounce? Is that why I'm here? Or am I even willing to embrace the humility and chastisement that the Word of God sometimes brings? But we see the people of God restrained in their grief by their leaders. Verses 9 and 10, we hear them say, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn. Do not weep. And the same is said in verse 11. Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And here we learn that dour puritanicalism is not what the Bible teaches either. Now we're, many of us I think, are Presbyterian, not just outwardly but also inwardly. And that means this is a word from the Lord That is a word of chastisement, and we need to hear it. We cannot read upon God that every time we get together, it's supposed to be a dour and sour kind of thing. We are are not to come in with long faces and to feel dark in our hearts and and to never have the joy of the Lord. We, We should listen to Nehemiah and to those working and preaching with him on this occasion. Mere mortification is not enough. You know, I'm happy to say this congregation is not like some I've been in. I I have been in congregations before. Maybe you have been in them where if you didn't beat them with a two-by-four from the pulpit, if you didn't leave them bloody and gasping for breath, then they would accuse you of failing in your pastoral duty to care for their souls. And and you know, in a a liberal environment where people don't believe much... uh, I can see how folks would overreact in that way. And it's true. We are all sinners and and we need the Word of God to smite us. But we also need the encouragement and the blessing and the festival and rejoicing that the Word of the Lord also gives us. Mere mortification is not enough. The Word also clearly, explicitly sets apart time and occasion in the life of Old Testament Israel and by implication in our Christian lives for joy and celebration. Both are essential for Christian living. Mortification on the one hand and vivification on the other. King Solomon said there was a time and a season for everything under heaven. And there's a time to mourn and there's a time to stop it. 
And there's a time to look up and to thank God for all of His blessings, getting out pencil and paper, listing them one by one if you have to, to lift your soul. You see, the Lord has here provided a remedy for the downcast heart. Ultimately, it's really sin that smites us, you know. If we didn't have this sin problem, then the smiting business wouldn't bother us at all. When we get to the new heavens and new earth, we will rejoice in the reading of God's Word and it won't touch us as far as the smiting goes because we will be fully conformed and in righteousness to the image of the very Son of God incarnate. Oh, God's work is not over. He gives and lifts up the downcast. There are seasons of spiritual blessing and plenty and uh, refreshing and encouragement. To our tears of repentance, which are essential, the Lord also adds in His kind occasion the fat and the sweet. Yes, there is a day of grief over our sin, but there's also a day on which to be reminded that the joy of, our, of the Lord is our strength, as given in verse 10. Joy and blessing. God sins through His Word. For you see, the Word not only smites, it also heals. We see that Nehemiah and his cohort here add Bible study to Bible reading. Out of devotion to the Lord in verses 13 and 14, they begin circling and focusing again on the Word of God, hearing it, hearing it over and over, good hearing, good understanding, even better. And it's worth all the trouble to get it. To hearing was also added doing out of devotion to the Lord. They weren't just to hear, they were also to listen. And they were to do what God commanded. And to ancient obedience. To obedience in days past when the commands of God for a special week of festival were given, there was a modern obedience that was added as well. The old way that God had commanded had fallen into disuse. And so Israel robbed herself of joy and truth and triumph. But now the festival was back. And God's people were back, therefore, to the paths of righteousness that He had laid out. For you see, God gives hope by His Word. The means of grace were abundant in the feast. Uh, Verse 18 lets us know that. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, He read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast for seven days. Seven days, one after another. And they got to go to Bible study. They didn't have to go to work. They got to hear the word of the Lord, how their hearts were lifted up. You know, in the Old South, in the, in the Deep South, uh, it's only the Baptists that do the week-long revival. But let me let you in on a secret. You know, we Presbyterians do it too, but we have different names for it, like missions conference and, and Bible conference or or Christian Living Conference. We, we have special seasons in which we set apart extra time. In the old country, what would the rhythm of life have been without a communion season where people would prepare once or twice a year for an extended season sitting around God's Word? Oh, we, we need to remember that all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. And spiritually, all regular and no 
special intensive extended season of of devotion and worship makes Jack a dull believer as well. So this is a shameless plug for you to stir your hearts up and come to the missions conference, to, to come eat barbecue at Rudy's and learn to rejoice and suck the fat of the marrow and to enjoy Christian fellowship and the Word of God and hearing what God is doing in another place, on another continent, in another country, among people that are just like you. Christians who love the Lord and enjoy that feast day and season for the soul. Uh, There's also an added little foreshadowing thing here. Verse 18 says, They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You see, God's pattern was that, that the festival season that He commanded through Moses, it began on a Sabbath, a Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. And then it ran for seven days. From Saturday to Saturday. And then there was that eighth day Sabbath. That extra day following the second Saturday. That is on the Sunday. After the second Saturday. That Sunday was also an extra worship day. For public worship and assembly. There together in the feast of the Lord. Preparing the way to help our little minds begin to see and to understand and to recognize that the day of resurrection was coming, the day on which the whole axis of the universe would shift, and so the day on which we were to worship would shift. No longer would we look back on six days of creation and one day of rest, but we would now look forward in the resurrection light toward the second coming of Jesus and the new heavens and new earth. And so the people of God of old, they worshipped too on Sunday on those high and holy festival occasions. God gave them gospel hope in resurrection light on those eight-day Sabbaths. And so, brethren, let the Word of God have its way in your heart and life. Where it strikes you, don't just shrug it off, but rather take it to heart. Let God's Word break you and mortify your sin. And when it comforts, when it consoles, do that very counter-cultural thing. Embrace the joy of the Lord held out to you and find your soul rejoicing in Him. That word that wounded you also heals and gives hope. And indeed on that day, when your soul rests in Him, it will truly be a happy day.